Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. Show of hands. Who has heard the basic moon meteor? Who, sorry, who has not heard my basic moon meteor long night theory? What? Who has not heard it? Really? As of course, um, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when they find the final cat, the Grail Castle, that's what that music is. And it's the only song I've ever wanted for my intro music. And uh, of course, it costs money, turns out, to use people's music. And when I was first starting out, my budget was zero. So once I got about two years along and got a little Patreon support, I was, I was like, I'm going back and getting that song. It cost me like 500 bucks for two years, but worth it for me. <laughs> Feels me with, I actually listen to that before I start my podcast. Like I play it back and listen to it, just like get the adrenaline flow <laughs> while I'm wearing my space pants. All the secrets. So yeah, space pants. I had the space pants before that happened. Okay, I bought. I saw them on the clearance rack at Macy's, which is where I do like all my shopping. And space pants are fifty bucks. The only question was buy one or buy two. Should have bought two, buy one. But then, like a few weeks later, the Tyrion space or the Peter yeah, Dinklage yeah. space pants. Like, <laughs> it was definitely a moment. So I have a podcast about mythology and symbolism, and I'm going to start by talking to you guys who have not, don't know my basic thing. About half the half you guys do, but mythology and symbolism sounds a little boring. Like. Surprised you guys didn't fall asleep just now. I'm going to talk about mythology and symbolism. I'm like, okay, all right, that sounds dry. It does, uh, but it's not. And symbolism is actually quite fun. I have a lot of fun on my podcast. So let's start with what I like to call a symbolism three-way. Happens all the time. It's when you have three things that symbolize each other, and once you tune into this symbolic relationship between those three things, things start to make more sense. So. 
We'll start with what I consider to be the most important symbolism three-way, which is the Azora High symbolism three-way. And this is comets, dragons, and flaming swords. So comets look like flaming swords. They do. That's just what they look like. Uh, when Gendry sees it, the red comet, he calls it the red sword. And Arya thinks that it looks like ice uh, right after Ned's head was chopped off, covered in blood. So we've got characters in the story looking at the comets and like, it looks like a sword. Um, Septon Chael says that it is the sword that slays the season. So even in a metaphorical sense, the comet is a sword. Uh, and in fact, um, summer does end right when the comet is spotted. It's in the beginning of A Clash of Kings that the Citadel sends out the ravens to signal the end of summer, and that is also when the comet appears. So when uh, Bran is actually in one of the chapters, he's wandering around asking everybody what the comet means. And when he gets to Septon Chael, he's like, oh, it's the sword that slays the seasons. And Bran thinks, well, he must be right because, you know, the raven just came and signaled the end of summer. But it's a sword. Uh, now, comets and meteors uh, are like dragons when they land. And this is why in mythology, comets and meteors have been described as dragons for a long time. is because they fly and they breathe fire. When they land, they land with a boom and a roar, a scream, and an impact and a lot of destruction. So, you kind of see how that happens. Um, <clears throat> and they even cause earthquakes sometimes. Now, comets are linked to dragons, specifically in A Song of Ice and Fire. Again, when Bran's wandering around and asking people what the comet means, Old Nan smells it and says, it be dragons, boy. <laughs> That's one of those things, like, I don't know, Old Nan can smell comets. <laughs> you know? And knows that, she, she knows what's up, though. It's about dragons. Danny calls the comet the dragon's tail right before she wakes the dragons. The Azor High Reborn Prophecy, of course, mingles dragons, comets, and flaming swords in the little circle. Uh, so that's pretty clear. And then when uh, dragons are in turn linked to flaming swords, in many ways, they both can be conceived of as super weapons that are made of fire. And jets of dragon flame look like flaming swords. And I've got a good picture, a still shot of, if you remember the scene where Danny's in the, in, the, in the show, she's in the house of the undying and she's sort of chained up in a Jesus pose, and her two dragons, they roast the flames out from under her arms. They look just like flaming swords. So it's a very good Lightbringer symbolism. And of course, uh, Azora High Reborn is supposed to have Lightbringer, and Danny fits all the Azora High Reborn you know, checkboxes, and yet does not have a flaming sword. Most people have figured out that the dragons are her flaming sword. They're her version of Lightbringer. Uh, now, when, okay, so here's this great quote from Zaro's own Daxos. She's telling Danny about the menace that her dragons pose to the world. He says, when your dragons were small, they were a wonder. Grown, they are death and devastation, a flaming sword above the world. So this is like the sword of Damocles, this metaphorical flaming sword. But at the same time, when you think of a flaming sword above the world, it looks like a flying sword, which leads you right back to comets again. So comets, dragons, and flaming swords. Now think about um, Valerian steel. They are swords that are forged in dragon fire. So fire and blood, we've got dragons associated with them again, and then we've got the last hero's dragon steel, which is another magic sword associated with dragons, and maybe that's Lightbringer that catches on fire. So, in the real world, uh, we have swords made out of meteors. We have uh, King Tut, if you guys probably saw that recently, made the rounds on all the social media, they found a meteor <coughs> knife in King Tut's tomb, uh, made out of meteorite ore, it's pretty cool looking. I don't know how much that costs. I'd like to get my hands on that. But uh, there's also a Japanese katana made out of meteorite ore. 
And of course, there's a little thing called Dawn in the Song of Ice and Fire, which is a sword made out of a meteor. And a lot of people have figured out that, well, maybe Dawn is the last hero's dragon steel, and the sense in which it is dragon steel is because it's from a meteor, and meteors are like dragons, and so it's dragon steel. So these things are all throughout the story. Now that's fun, but what does it mean? Other than just being cool and clever and interesting and being a three-way, well, it actually reveals quite a lot. So we already took the poll. A lot of you guys have not heard my theory. So here's the theory. I was sitting around one day in 2015, and I was listening to Radio Westeros and History of Westeros talk about the long night in Zorhain, Comets and Dragons. And they read this one myth. It says, this is, the, uh, this is from a Game of Thrones, and this is something that a traitor, no, I'm sorry, it's one of Danny's handmaids that says this to her. A traitor from Karth once told me that dragons come from the moon, Blonde Doria said, as she warmed a towel over the fire. Silvery wet hair tumbled across her eyes as Danny turned her head curious. The moon? Told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Lysine girl said. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. This is a great myth because it sounds like nonsense at first, but actually contains a lot of information. Um, dragons coming from the moon doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, no literal sense. The dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire did not come from the moon. Maybe in a different fantasy story we'd have something like that, but Song of Ice and Fire, the magic is very grounded, it's very limited. Dragons didn't fly from the moon to the earth. Like, that just didn't happen. So what does this myth mean? I don't know. But then if you read the Azor Ahai myth from A Storm of Swords, it says, this is um, Salador San speaking, a hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as he glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife, Nissanissa. Nissanissa, he said to her, for that was her name, bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why, I cannot say, and Azorahai thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It's said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel, such as the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. So, I put these two myths together and I was like, wait a minute, we've got two stories about a cracking moon. Now, ancient mythology is largely based on nature and natural disasters. If there's a big flood, like the flood myth, for example, this is the biggest, most well-known universal myth in the world. Almost every culture around the world has this flood myth. Well, eventually we figured out it wasn't a bunch of gobbledygook, it was mostly just tales of the last ice age melting down. And over the course of about 6,000 years from 13,000 BC to 7,000 BC, the sea levels rose by about 400 feet. And there was massive glacial meltwater. There was, uh, the glaciers were melting, there was uh, even potentially rapid destabilization of ice sheets, where you have these large meltwater lakes build up on the top of the ice sheet, and all of a sudden it cracks. And so you get this great flood across the Great Plains. We know there was one, for example, that just literally sweeps everything out of its way. So this universal myth is actually rooted in something that happened. It's, it's the great flood of the Bible. It's, I mean, it wasn't, you know, because man was sinful and God, you know, and the rainbow and all that. But nevertheless, there is a kernel of truth to all these flood myths. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, we've got two myths about the moon cracking. So I started to think, maybe this, maybe something happened to the moon in the sky. And then I started thinking about dragons coming from the moon. And I was like, well, if a moon cracks open, what's going to happen? Cracks open or cracks or anything bad happens to the moon, we're going to get some pieces of rock that chip off. 
Some of them will fall to Earth and become moon meteors. That would be dragons coming from the moon, because remember, meteors can be dragons. So now this myth is starting to make sense. I'm like, okay, something happened to the moon, dragons flew out of the moon, well, that's actually meteors. And then, well, we've got this big puzzle sitting around called the long night. Well, what caused the long night? I don't know, but meteors can cause a long night because we've got basically, there's three things, there's three candidates for a long night mechanism. If it's not just like, well, the others waved their hands and the sun turned black or something. If it's not that, there's some sort of mechanism. It's either gotta be a nuclear winter, it's gotta be a volcanic winter, or an impact winter. Those are the three mechanisms that we know of that can literally throw up so much dust and debris and ash and smoke that it saturates the entire atmosphere and the sun is hidden, the skies would be like gray, dark gray, purple during the day, black at night. These things can go on for three, five years or so, maybe a little longer, it's, you know, it's not exact science, but we know these things have happened periodically. And so here we have this story about a moon cracking and dragons coming from the moon. Best of all, one of these myths, the Azor Ahai myth, is supposedly happened at the time of the long night. So now we have moon cracking during the long night, We've got dragons coming from the moon. So at this point, I'm getting pretty excited. I'm like, dude, I think I just figured out what fucking caused a long night. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the biggest mysteries in the book. I'm like kind of, you know, at this point in 2015, I read the books maybe twice and just started listening to podcasts. I was into History of Westeros and Radio Westeros. And I was just sort of getting, it's my first time like really getting into the books and thinking about it harder than just a casual fan. And I'm like, holy crap, did I just figure out the cause of the long night? And I was just kind of jittery. I was like, no, I'm not that smart. You know, I couldn't handle it. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. And then the World of Ice and Fire was sitting around, and I'm looking in the World of Ice and Fire, and there's this story about this Bloodstone Emperor guy in the Long Night, so check it out. When the daughter of the Oval Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, don't ask me what that means, feasted on him in flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Wait a minute. That's interesting. Many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first high priest of the sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persisted to stay in many port cities throughout the known world. Okay, that's fine. But then here comes the good part. In the annals of the further east, it was the blood betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the age of darkness called the Long Night. Despairing of the evil that had been unleashed on earth, the maiden made of light, that's the sun, turned her back upon the world, and the Lion of Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of man. Toughest thing about a solo panel? No one else to fill up any gaps for you. <laughs> I will be taking some questions soon, so. Thanks for the encouragement, I appreciate it. <laughs> Obviously don't lack for ambition. Okay, so we've got this, we've got now a third story about a, moon, about a meteor, and this one too is tied to the long night. Uh, so this is great. I'm like, holy crap, this is, I'm on to something. Then I start looking around, and there's actually meteors all over the damn place in the ancient history. So we got the legend of dawn, of course. We've got this special magic meteor, and what do they do? They make a magic sword out of it that might be Lightbringer. So again, there's like some sort of tie to the long night. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Then we've got, uh, you know, and, and of course dawn might be dragon steel, and again, more long night ties. Uh, but then there are some more covert ones that are not as obvious, okay? So in the world of ice and fire, they talk about the Grey King. 
The Grey King is a very interesting fellow. It says it was the Grey King who brought fire to the earth by taunting the storm god until he lashed down with a thunderbolt setting a tree ablaze. Well, ancient man uh, frequently calls meteors thunderstones, and you can sort of see why. They fall like a basically a bigger version of a thunderbolt, and they make a big boom. <laughs> Thunderstones. So not only that, but there's a Luciferian theme right in this story. So this is a guy that's taking the fire of the gods from heaven and bringing it to earth. So not only is there comets and meteors, but this whole fire of the gods subtext, which we're going to start talking about more. But that's that's a part of that's what the Bloodstone Emperor was doing. He was trying to become like a god, and he apparently took power from this meteor. So this is very similar to the Great King stealing the fire of the gods and having it come down. Also, of course, the a burning tree is a recognizable symbol for anybody who's read the Bible. It's just like the burning bush, which is also, you know, speaks to Moses with the voice of God. Uh, and it's also reference to the weirwoods, by the way, because the weirwoods' red leaves are described as a blaze of flame among the green one time. And if you look at the weirwoods, they've got this bloody face. But if you think about those red leaves as burning hands or like burning hair instead of bloody hair, now it's like a person that's like on fire and screaming. But the thing is, the weirwoods represent the fire of the gods because fire of the gods is simply the thing that allows man to become like a god, and that's what the weirwood paste and what the green seer magic is. So he's giving you a clue right here that the weirwoods are involved with all this meteor stuff, but a little bit of a sidetrack. So the other myth about the Grey King is more obviously a meteor myth. It says Naga had been the first sea dragon, the mightiest ever to rise from the waves. She fed on krakens and leviathans and drowned whole islands in her wrath, yet the Grey King had slain her. So, if dragons are meteors, what's a sea dragon? Well, it's probably just a meteor that landed in the ocean, right? And it says, what, this sea dragon drowned whole islands? Well, a meteor that falls in the water, guess what it does? It makes floods and drowns islands and drowns the land. So this is like really straightforward. Not only that, but if you read in A Clash of Kings, the very first chapter where we ever see the Iron Islands is this first, that's actually the second Theon chapter. Um, the comet appears overhead as he looks at Pike, and this is the description. The point of land on which the Greyjoys had raised their fortress had once thrust like a sword into the bowels of the ocean, but the waves had hammered at it day and night until the land broke and shattered thousands of years past. All that remained were three bare and barren islands and a dozen towering stacks of rock that rose from the water like the pillars of some sea god's temple, while the angry waves foamed and crashed among them. And then it says, the sea tower rose from the outmost island at the point of the broken sword. So he's using this sword metaphor for the peninsula, saying it, it juts out into the water like a sword. But the language is of a, a sword thrusting into the ocean, and that's exactly how I'm interpreting the sea dragon myth. And then a paragraph later, Theon's like, oh yeah, the comet looks really nice over the castle. So it's like, oh, well, there's your sword that thrust into the sea right there. And that's generally how Martin does his symbolism, I've found, is that he gives you all the pieces right in one scene so that you can sort of put them together on a subconscious level. And that sort of calls your conscious mind to sort of analyze it and then put it together into a, a coherent tinfoil theory that you can sell on YouTube. <laughs> so then we've got something called the Hammer of the Waters. Uh, the proof for that, quote unquote, is a little more like in the weeds, so I'll just go with the basics of it. It's this mysterious event. It smashed the land. It was something that was called down, okay? So this sounds like the fire of the storm, uh, the Grey King myth that we just heard where he taunts the storm god and calls down the fire of the gods. Of course, we're told that the Hammer of the Waters 
was called down by you know blood magic on the Isle of Faces and Children of the Forest and stuff. I think that's only partially right. I do think that Azor Ahai has an overlap with Green Seers and that the blood magic that Azor Ahai does with Nissa Nissa has something to do with this with this tale. But the main point is that there is a meteor component to this, I think, because meteors can, in fact, cause massive land devastation. If, if it, one landed on an isthmus like that, it essentially, the crater would destroy the isthmus and, and do just what the, uh, the breaking of the Armadorn did. So if it's not uh, children of the forest causing an earthquake, which I guess you can't rule out, or if it's not just gradual land subsidence, or the, you know, the rising of the, the sea levels, then I think a moon meteor, you know, kind of makes sense. So whether or not you buy that idea on first blush, the point is, with all these other moon meteor stories, you have to look at the Hammer to Water story and think, well, maybe that could be another part of this moon cracking event. So then you've got Durn Durndon. He stole the daughter of the gods, uh, Elenai, daughter of the sea and wind god, who then unleashed their wrath and sent the wind and waters to basically destroy his castle. He built another castle. That one sank, fell into the swamp. Then it built a third one. That one burned down, fell over, and sank into the swamp. Then it built a fourth one. I already did that this weekend, so if you, if you heard that joke, you're already sorry. But I like it right now, so. Point is, the gods attacked Durn Durn, and he had to build seven castles. The first storm is the important one because it killed everybody at his wedding. And so this is basically a flood myth. It's not really a moon meteor myth. However, like I said, uh, an ocean landing of a meteor would cause a flood. And if the hammer of the waters was a moon meteor, think about what would happen. It would send massive tidal waves all up the newly created narrow sea. I mean, tidal wave doesn't even like probably cut it. We're talking about the changing of the ocean currents of the entire world. We're talking about a meteor impact in the water that causes probably destabilizing earthquakes, massive collapse of land, I mean, the tidal waves in the narrow sea would have been ridiculous, the kind that you would have made a myth about that would last 10,000 years. And that's what we have right here. Best part of this is that the myth implies that the weather patterns permanently changed after this event with Durn Durndon, because it says, gods do not forget, and still the gales came raging up the narrow sea. So ever since this event with Durn God's grief, the weather has been different. There has been these vicious storms on Storm's End that weren't there before. And that makes perfect sense if this was the breaking of the Arm of Dorne that led to these floods that were being um, mythicized right here. So, <clears throat> how am I doing? <laughs> oh, look, it's 420. <laughs> Alright, that's a joke for people who have watched my live streams. Alright, yeah, let's go ahead. We'll grab a, we'll stop and grab a question here. Uh, I have a question about the um, the Bloodstone Emperor story, um, because it says he was worshipping a black stone that fell from the sky, implying that the black stone was somehow linked with the meteor. But the other references we see to black stone, like the sea stone chair, or the frog, or I think right. there's one Thorios, or like, those all or a shy, those all seem to be connected to Deep One and Squisher Legends somehow. So how, since all the other... I'm uh, so glad you brought up Squishers. Since <laughs> all of the other instances of Black Stone are connected with the Squishers, 
how does that relate to the Bloodstone Emperor? So it's a you're into Lovecraft a little bit, right? Yes. Okay, have you read The Color Out of Space? Yes. It's about a meteor that falls and basically turns the land into gray dust and sucks all the life out of everything. Sounds like a shot, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Which is where one of the meteors fell. So there is an interaction, essentially. Like, think about the moon meteors as being toxic and defiled because there was, all of these stories are tied to a lot of magic and a lot of people trying to obtain the fire of the gods, the Azorahai myth in particular, where it says the moon cracked right when Nissa Nissa was stabbed. So it almost implies, like, sorcerers working horrible blood magic that accidentally cracks the moon somehow. So I think what's going on is that these meteors, when they fell, are essentially toxic. I mean, the Bloodstone Emperor is like, this thing is awesome. I love it. It sounds pretty effing evil. And uh, separate theory, Bloodstone Emperor is supposedly from the Great Empire of the Dawn, but I think the Great Empire of the Dawn is the ones who built a shy. So I picture the Bloodstone Emperor sitting in a shy, basically worshipping this black stone. So the Deep Ones and Squishers um, aren't exactly like directly connected, but it's all basically a Lovecraft thing that Martin is pulling from. And that's why you see the greasy black stone always around Lovecrafting stuff. But my point is that a meteor that falls and magically like sucks the life out of everything is a very strong Lovecrafting element as well. And the greasy black stone can't all be moon meteorites simply because there's too much of it, especially at Ashai. Ashai is the largest city in the world. It's built entirely out of greasy black stone. I mean, it's like miles and miles big. There's a meteorite, the largest meteorite we have is like, I don't know, 20 feet across or something like that. However, if these meteorites are toxic and evil, then maybe when it lands in Ashai, it starts turning all the stone around it into greasy black stone. Because here's the thing, you don't build the largest city in the world so that like a small group of sorcerers have a place to hang out and like practice dark magic. Ashai is told, we're told that it's this huge city, but it's basically empty now. So instead of thinking about weird people building a giant city out of black stone, I picture them building it out of gleaming white stone because what kind of civilizations build huge ancient metropolises? I mean, this must have been a great, wealthy, powerful situation and it's built right on the tip of a peninsula, Ashai is. It's a great trading port, just like Karth. It's, it sits astride the Saffron Straits. It would have been in a position to control all the trade to whatever is you know, east of Ashai and to all the Sunset Sea. So the only people that could have built Ashai would have been a glorious, this is Atlantis, basically. It's a short way to say it. And so I picture Ashai once having been glorious, and then this, this meteor falls, and the whole thing just, the shadow drops, the stone turns black, Bloodstone Emperor takes power, he's worshipping the stone, and probably some of the genetic experiments that were told the Bloodstone Emperor was working, maybe that has something to do with the Squishers or whatever. Or maybe he was just like, you know, the Squishers saw this guy and they were like, Earthborn. Uh, Cassandra in the back. Did you not read Greasy Black Stone as Obsidian? Because, you know, a no. meteor can hit, like, and uh, cause volcanoes to go off, because when I, I thought that that might be, you know, volcanic stone. So, um, I did consider that, definitely, and I think that symbolically they're like, you know, best buddies. Um, but no, I think they're definitely different substances. Just because obsidian, it's so brittle and flaky, like if the sea stone chair was made out of obsidian, it, it, it wouldn't have even been able to drag it anywhere, it would have fallen apart. So, like, really think it's definitely different stuff. And I don't think you could build an entire city out of obsidian either. Um, but I do think that, again, symbolically, obsidian represents moon meteors just like the black stone does. But in a literal sense, 
I, I picture Blackstone as being like the fallout of the meteor poisoning. But um, I'm going to go ahead and move uh, move on if I can, because I've got some stuff I want to get to. Um, if you got a if you got a question, just hang on to it for a second. I'll come back. So the last myth that uh, has falling stars is actually Huger Hill, and this is one that is like way under the radar. But check this out. The faith taught that that the seven themselves had once walked the hills of Andalos in human form. The father reached his hand into the heavens, pulled down seven stars, Tyrion recited from memory, and one by one had set them on the brow of Huger of the Hill to make a glowing crown. So there you go, we've got more falling stars, and we've got a man becoming, uh, he's gaining the authority of the gods. He's got this glowing crown that God gave him. He's got divine authority now. He gets 44 wives and a whole bunch of children. Or is it, no, was it like 44 children from one wife? Seven, seven and seven mighty sons, or seven and seventy mighty sons? Maybe he had seven wives. I think it's just it's a willowy woman from the blue right. pool, but he, but he has like okay, yeah. So he doesn't have multiple wives. I guess he's not a Mormon, but <laughs> he gains religious authority and becomes godlike by falling stars. So this is again a similar type of myth. So to recap and to zoom back, we've got two myths about cracking moons. We've got falling stars all over the place. We've got a lot of this Luciferian theme of grabbing the fire of the gods. So now I feel like I'm, I'm getting somewhere. And then the tipper, this is, this is the best part, so don't fall asleep yet. <laughs> the alchemical wedding of Daenerys Targaryen. This is where Daenerys hatches her dragons, but it's not just a dragon hatching, it's actually an alchemical wedding, if you will. So what's happening is that Danny is simultaneously reenacting this Carthian myth about a second moon wandering too close to the sun, cracking from the heat, and thousand thousand dragons poured forth. That's going to happen at this scene, but she's also fulfilling the Azor High Reborn prophecy. So, <clears throat> let me explain how that works. Danny and Drogo famously have nicknames for each other. Very cute pet names. They're in the TV show, too. Who knows what they are? Right. Who knows my life? So, Danny is got basically a name tag right here, or a sign overhead. Moon. She's the moon. And Drogo is the sun. And this myth about the second moon wandering too close to the sun, the Dothraki actually uh, come back against that. They're like, that's silly. Stupid straw head slave, which is Florence straw head. Dothraki racial slur. Uh, and she says, no, of course, everyone knows that the sun and moon are gods. They're husband and wife. So here we have Danny and Drogo, husband and wife, as a sun and moon. Basically fits the Dothraki belief about the sun and moon. So what happens at this funeral? We light the sun on fire, right? And then what does Danny the moon do? Does She wanders too close to the sun. And what happens? Dragons. Dragons. So this is the, it's not a thousand, only three, because a thousand would CGI budget. Uh, this is the myth. This is the reenactment of the myth. So right here, when I caught that, I had to stop and take stock because this is now, this is a new phenomenon that I'm discovering in the books. This is not just figuring out what caused the long night. We are catching George in this strange technique where he's writing fables and then having his characters in the book act out the fables through symbolism. And then now you've got to look at all the fables and look at all the characters. And sure enough, people have already caught on to this. A lot of people figured out, well, Stannis is a lot like the Night's King. Melisandre takes his seed and soul, just like Night's Queen does. Stannis uh, rules at the Night Fort, like the Night's King. Um, Stannis 
is uh, turning into half a corpse. Mm -hmm. Goes on and on and on. Uh, people have noticed that Tyrion is a lot like Lan the Clever. If you don't know who Lan the Clever is, that's where the word Lannister comes from. This ancient guy named Lan the Clever, who's very clever. And he tricked somebody called the Casterlies out of Casterly Rock. The Casterlies used to own Casterly Rock. Along came Lan, and he tricked them. There's all these different tales about what he did to trick them. But the point is that Lan the Clever um, is basically a predecessor of Tyrion. And Tyrion, uh, okay, so the parallel is this. Lan apparently slipped in the cracks of Casterly Rock and basically was uh, like howling in the corners and making demon sounds at night so that nobody could sleep and everyone thought it was haunted and they left. But then we're also told that Tyrion's given charge of all the drains in Casterly Rock. So, and just as the TV show showed that knowledge like coming in handy, I think that's going to happen in the books too. Tyrion's knowledge of the inner workings of Casterly Rock is going to allow him to slip inside the rock just like Lan did. And if Tyrion's a Targaryen, then he is winkling Casterly Rock away from the Lannisters, just like Lan winkled Casterly Rock away from the Casterlies. So, it's all over the place. And of course, the biggest one is Azor High Reborn. We've got a myth about Azor High, and we're looking for somebody to be Azor High Reborn. And that's what's actually going on in this scene. Danny is waking dragons from stone under a bleeding star, just like Azor High Reborn is supposed to do. So this is like... Now, some pretty next level shit, right? We've got an ancient prophecy and an ancient myth both being enacted out by the main character in the climax scene of the first book, okay? But let's go back to the, the moon meteor long night thing. I'm wondering if these two stories about the moon's cracking are telling us the story of the long night, right? Well, the fact that the, um, the, one, the one that's not tied to the long night is the second moon story. Like, so the moon cracking in the Azora High fable is tied to the Long Night. But this Carthine tale is dis it's, it's disembodied in time. We don't know if it happened yesterday or, or whenever. It's just one time there used to be a second moon and this happened and the dragons poured forth. So what I'm trying to do is tie this Carthine myth to the Long Night. But here's Danny in that acting out the Carthine myth while she fulfills the Azora High Reborn prophecy, which is tied to the Long Night. So now I'm really thinking that second moon cracking and the dragons born forth is definitely a long night event, and this has got to be the cause of the long night. So, symbolism is fun, interesting, <laughs> is it not? Okay, you can you can solve mysteries like what caused the long night. You can figure out you can catch these uh, these parallels that are happening between the main characters, and now we have this awesome scene where Danny wakes the dragons. It's that much more awesome. Now it's like reached up into the stars, and it's like suns and moons colliding right on Earth in these people, and that's oh, that's really freaking cool to me. And this this is the energy that fuels my podcast: is going through the books, finding these scenes, comparing them to the myth, and then the whole thing just pops out like a holographic thing, and it starts creating a story within the story. Because what are we learning? We're learning about the Long Night through through these parallels. And when you find more and more of these parallels, basically what George has done is he's hidden the broad strokes of the Long Night and the War for the Dawn mysteries right in the book because the characters are acting out the old myths. So if we want to figure out what these old myths mean, all we have to do is start comparing them to the characters that match, and we can start making a lot more sense of them, just like we did with this Carthage myth. All right, so let's take a couple questions uh, in the purple. Do you think any of that could be tied into the Doom of Old Valyria, considering that that was an 
called volcanic attack that was basically the destruction of an entire civilization, but also led to the target the first Targaryens coming to Westeros. So I think it's very much like a parallel event because of course the doom of Valyria happened 400 years ago, which is recent enough to kind of trust the date. You know what I mean? Like if they had said it was 4,000 years ago, you might be like, well, maybe it was actually 8,000 and they screwed that up. But 400 years ago means the doom is definitely not actually connected to the long night, thank you. But it is very similar because if what I'm talking about happened at a shy to this great empire of the dawn civilization, by the way, I basically think they are the ancestors of the Valerians, which is what the world of ice and fire suggests. And so this is what would have happened. And in fact, that's what it says happened when the, the Bloodstone Emperor took power is that all, um, after Azor Ahai defeated him, all the surviving tribes and nations scattered to the four corners. The Great Empire of the Dawn was not reborn. And instead we get, in the same territory, E.T., Lang, Jogosnai, Herkun, Nefer, and all these other little small kingdoms in the east. So we're given the idea that the Great Empire of the Dawn broke up, scattered to the wind, after this great calamity, which is exactly what happened with the Doom of Valyria. But here's the cool thing about the Doom. The Doom shows us how George's magic works and the way that it's tied to nature, okay? So George doesn't just pull magic out of thin air and just make flying fireballs and things like that. It's not irrational. He takes nature and just like sprinkles a little pixie dust on it. And so the Doom of Valyria is basically a supermassive volcanic explosion, but it's a magical explosion. We know it's magical because 400 years later, there's still some sort of creepy magical fallout zone. So that's not a regular volcanic explosion. It was a volcanic explosion pumped up by magic for, you know, for whatever reasons, either because the Valerians were using magic on the volcanoes or because the volcanoes are inherently magical. One or the other, it was a magical disaster. And if you think about, so basically that's what I'm proposing for the long night is that these moon meteors are a magical disaster. So let's, let's, let's talk about that. So I get the science critique of this theory where they go, okay, well, if a moon meteor is going to cause an impact winter, it's got to be yay big. And if it's yay big, you know, then all the, you know, a lot of people on Earth would die. Or they'd say, if a moon cracks open, you'd get meteors that are a lot bigger than that, and everyone would definitely die. And in fact, what would happen is all the broken up pieces of moon would basically form an asteroid belt that would, would, would you know, that's where the rings of Saturn and things come from. So there's, scientifically, the moon meteor long night theory is not 100%. And I don't think it's meant to be, because it's not purely scientific. These moon meteors are magical. So just like George is taking a natural disaster like the Doom and making a magical fantasy version of it that's appropriate for a fantasy novel, he's taking a natural thing like an impact winter and sprinkling pixie dust on it, and we get ice demons. And we need a flaming sword hero to end it. I don't know how that works, really. I don't know how you clear the skies with like a flaming sword burned up the dust. Uh, maybe it was the winds of winter that somebody called the winds and it blew ice. I don't know. I haven't actually figured that part out. Um, so, on the science side of it, I think that George is basically just, he's using natural scientific ideas as a jumping off point to make fantasy. But the fantasy stuff does not pass scientific muster and it's not supposed to. So, I know that I'm probably going to get um, some of you were thinking about asking that question, so go ahead and address that one. Um, okay, other question right there. Um, I think it's probably important to know that uh, you mentioned it earlier, where uh, when, the, when the moon cracked, and you mentioned that the sun turned its back on the planet, 
Now, there probably was a period of time where there was a, an eclipse. And for how long? I don't know. But uh, how long would it take for a moon to go critical before it's destroyed by the sun? Which would uh, explain small particles hitting the planet instead of some large meteorite hitting the planet and destroying everything. It's funny that you mentioned an eclipse. If you were making a myth about an eclipse, how might you describe it? Well, you could call it that, or you might call it, you might say that the moon wandered too close to the sun. So there you go. So I think there was, in fact, an eclipse event. And there's also like a bigger eclipse in the sense that if the moon cracked when it was in that eclipse position, because of course this is fantasy and you know, the stars align and then the disaster happens or whatever, you'd see an eclipse like an eye in the sky, and then you'd see a black cloud spreading out from that eye, which is your own sigil. And it's also the God's eye, that's right. So there's, it's a whole like sort of jumping off point, but the God's eye is yet another myth, which is basically encoded astronomy. Um, and of course, there's a whole angle of research that uh, the God's eye lake itself is a crater lake, yeah. or at least it looks like one. And there's a really cool YouTuber called An American Thinks. Has anybody heard of that? No, you got homework. An American Thinks. He's got uh, God's Eye One, Two, and Three. They're really fun, and he's coming at it from a scientific point of view. And he's like found all the crater lakes in the world and, and shown their shape. And he's like, here, I found the best match for the God's Eye on the faces, and it looks a damn lot like it. So what happens is uh, when a crater lands, there's a little rebound splash right in the middle of the crater that sort of bounces up and it freezes in place. So sometimes you get these little islands in the middle of a round lake, and that's what a crater lake often looks like, and that's what the Isle of Faces is. But it's also a diagram of an eclipse. If the Isle of Faces correlates to the moon, and the lake correlates to the sun, then it's basically, it's a dot in the middle of an eye. So there's a lot going on there. Perhaps that's why the, um, the God's Eye Lake appears to be on fire a bunch of times. And then uh, on the Isle of Faces, we've got um, you know trees with faces. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the man in the moon. <laughs> There's also a myth about Lucifer being uh, trapped in the moon that I found. It's pretty interesting. So if you broke the moon, Lucifer would break free, I guess, and come down to Earth like the Bloodstone Emperor. You know, practice dark arts and sorcery, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, okay, we've got 10 minutes left, and assessing what I want to get to out of what I have left versus taking questions. Okay, so there is, I'm going to shorten this and then go to questions for the rest. So there's a couple of clues in the actual scene where Danny wakes the dragons that are very strong prompts to think about certain things. So listen to this. The heat beat at the air with great red wings driving the Dothraki back driving off even more months, but Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon, and the fire was inside her. So when the moon cracked because of the sun, it dragged the fire of the sun. So here's Danny at the moon. The fire is inside her when she's walking into the pyre. And then it says, a thousand thousand dragons. That equals one million, right? One million dragons. So right before this whole scene, when she wakes the dragons, it says, she told herself there were powers stronger than hatred, and spells older and truer than any magi had learned in a shy. The night was black and moonless, but overhead, a million stars burned bright. So there's no moon, because it just got blown out of the sky. 
and instead we have a million stars, a thousand thousand dragons. And this is right before she does this whole scene. And then it says, she took that for an omen. And I was like, I'm taking that for a clue. <laughs> so then the three cracks of the eggs, this is the best. The first egg crack says, and something else came crashing down, bouncing and rolling, and it was a thin crescent of pale stone. So the first cracking egg drops a little crescent moon at her feet. The second crack, it reminds us of the Great King's Thunderbolt. It says, and there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder. And then she says, I am Daenerys Stormborn, and walks into the fire storm, all in one paragraph. So we've got all this storm imagery. And then we've got Daenerys walking into the pyre when we have a thunderous dragon egg cracking. And then the third one says, the third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. So that's kind of like, I don't know, it is what it is. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and stop there and start taking some questions. Right there. Is there any significance uh, bringing in the show to the, the dome at the Citadel? I can't remember, Astrodome or whatever it is. Um, Astrolabe. Well, if you look at the intro, there's a moment in the astrolabe where they do an eclipse that looks just like the God's Eye, actually. No, it's not a moment. It's the Game of Thrones logo is what it is. You see the sun, and then just smaller, it's the circular Game of Thrones, and it goes out to the side, you know? But it's the God's Eye image, exactly. And so, yeah, I noticed that one time. I was like, wait a minute. D&D &D might be a little bit clued into some of this stuff. And then, then came the cave paintings episode where they drew the god's eye all over the freaking wall amid a bunch of solar systems and stuff. So at this point, I'm about 50-50 on D&D being like a little bit clued into this. I don't know if they're just dropping Easter eggs um, or if they're actually going to do something with an eclipse, but one of the books that Sam sees in the Citadel is an eclipse chart, and it's actually taken from a like 13th century Arabic text that is a chart of the eclipses, and it's got like an overhead view of the sun and the moon, and the different positions, and it shows the moon shadows and stuff. And that's one of the things that Sam looks at in the Citadel, so. There's, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I was disappointed that the wall fell without another moon meteor uh, attack, because, spoiler alert, if moon meteors cause the first long night, and there's a new long night coming, guess what I expect to happen? <laughs> More moon meteors, so watch out for that in T-Wow. That's, by the way, that's, um, that's, that's the day Beers wins the internet day. That happens. <laughs> that's my real name. Um, I, if, I don't think, if my theory is true, I feel like 75% sure that we're going to get another moon meteor attack. It says right there, one day this, the other moon will kiss the sun too and crack and the dragons will return. So that's like a prophecy of what's going to happen. And actually, my very next podcast that I'm going to put out, Mythical Astronomy Advice and Fire, is going to be about all the foreshadowing of the new moon meteor disaster, which I think is coming. Yeah. Hashtag ice moon apocalypse. <laughs> all the way in the back. Do, do the horns possibly have anything to do with uh, future meteors? Joramund and or Euron slash? So the one I like is uh, Comet Binder. I mean Dragon Binder. <laughs> I mean Comet Binder. <laughs> oh, did I say that? Okay, so that's, that's the one. And then the Horn of Winter talks about waking giants in the Earth, so we got earthquakes, and maybe knocking down the wall. Those are all events which could be tied to a meteor impact. So, yeah, that's actually going to be like three podcasts away. Cool. <laughs> uh, you mentioned in the Doom of Valyria with the, how George like sprinkles pixie dust on natural events, and the Doom was this big explosion that even 400 years later, like 
the area is sick and the people who live in it get sick with a wasting disease grayscale. Yeah, right. Um, is, there, is it possible, slash, is there any evidence that the doom might have been some magical atomic experiment? Um, well, so I don't buy into any of the sci scientific background or scientific explanation. You know, there's secretly, you know, before the long night, we were a technological civilization or the Red Comet's a spaceship. Um, I do like those theories because they're like well thought out and put together and they're presented by some really great people. I just, I don't think any of them are true. I think they're very wrong. I think they're reading the books completely wrong. So, I understand them and like them, but I just, yeah, I think, don't think that was it. I think we're being told that it was moon meteors. I mean, there's just, it's right there, so. Can you talk a little bit about what's for me here Uh, you know, I, I, I had a whole section for that, but I got like three minutes left, so. Uh, I probably can't, probably can't. I will say that uh, if you're interested in that, of course, we've got a lot of that on the podcast. So. In what? I didn't hear Oh, he was asking me to explain the name Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically Venus Morning Star mythology. Uh, <coughs> Lucifer is literally the Latin word for Venus when it appears as the morning star. And when it appears as the evening star, uh, it's called Vesper, because it actually shifts back and forth. Um, so, gosh, we might have time to do this. Audience volunteer, you right there. You wanna... <clears throat> it's gonna be really easy. I want you to stand right here at the end of the stage. <clears throat> you are lovely Venus. You are the morning star, okay? I am the sun. Now, I'll explain to you how this works. So, you guys in the audience, you are on Earth, okay? Now, your orbit around the sun is very large. Let's take, uh, let's say you're approximately in the back of the room. So your orbit's gonna be like this around me. It's 80 feet big. Venus is much closer to the sun than the Earth, so her orbit is much smaller. It's gonna be like 12 feet. She wanted to orbit, which, don't, don't try to stay with them. <laughs> so, from the position of the Earth, you will always see Venus near the Sun. The range of possibilities are from here to right here. Venus will never be over there, or over there, or over there, or over there, nowhere. Only close to the Sun. And so, as Venus goes around the Sun, and the Earth goes around the Sun, the relative positions shift. So sometimes, Venus appears here. Now, the Earth turns kind of clockwise. So what's gonna happen is, uh, if you are, let me get you as a volunteer, go ahead and stand up in the blue, with the beard. Oh. Yep. <laughs> so now, go ahead and turn and, and face the back wall. It's a trust test now. Time out. <laughs> it is nighttime for him. He cannot see me, the glorious sun, and so it is dark for him. But as he slowly rotates to his left, stop. Now, on the edge of his vision, before he can see me, he will see lovely Venus. This is Venus as the morning star. You will see Venus only a couple hours before sunrise. And then what's going to happen is, as he continues to turn, he sees me. I'm really bright. I block out all the stars. And she disappears. <laughs> you go ahead and move over here. <clears throat> Different configuration. Venus is in this part of his cycle. Go ahead and turn back around again. Now turn and face me slowly to the left. Okay, the sun's rising. No Venus to be seen anywhere. It's daytime, it's daytime. Keep turning, keep turning. And stop. So right now, sunset. The sun has passed out of his field of vision. 
and here is Venus. Venus is the brightest star in the sky. Even though she's actually a planet, she looks like a star, but she's way like four times brighter than the competition. Four times more beautiful. <laughs> so what's going to happen is, when just at that moment when the sky starts to darken just a little bit, that's all the room that Venus needs to start shining. And so the first star you'll see tonight, by the way, because Venus is in the even star position right now, will be Venus. And you'll see it in the direction of sunset, right? Because Venus is close to the sun. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see Venus pop into view just maybe like a quarter of the way up on the horizon. And then she's going to fall down to the horizon. Because as he continues to turn, what's happening? She's passing out of his field of vision. And so the, the even star appears to fall from the sky and crash to the earth, while the morning star appears to rise from the horizon and then sort of disappear. So that's why we have all these deities that ascend to heaven, like Jesus, or get kicked out of heaven, like Jesus when he comes down to earth, or like Lucifer when he's kicked out of heaven. So that's why in the Bible both Jesus and Lucifer are called the morning star, because they both do morning star things. So does Quetzalcoatl, so does Aphrodite, so do people all over the world, men, women, gods and goddesses. There's so many ways to see Venus, but every morning star deity will have some sort of rising and some sort of falling. And that's why the sword of the morning in the Song of Ice and Fire was made from a falling star. And that's why Asharadane jumped out of the tower and fell into the sea, just like Aphrodite. And that's why the new sword of the morning must rise. And when he rises, he will bring the dawn and the sunrise, because that's what Venus does. So let's give it a hand to both of Venus. And that's um, two minutes over, so thank you for coming. You're going to close Tommy by some If any of that was remotely interesting, then go to lucifer.com and you'll find the rest. Thank you.